the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate for tonight. Thank you so much for joining us on this cold and rainy Sunday evening here in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, Tonight, in the next two segments, we're going to be talking to a political commentator who I've known for many years. Her name is Kathy Lux, former mayor of North Royalton and uh, in the political scene. She's with us tonight to uh, talk about some of the current political topics and actually find out what a political commentator can comment about. Kathy, thank you for joining us. Nick, how are you? It's nice to be here. Thanks. Nice having you. Boy, we haven't uh, talked for, for a long time. Uh, we really haven't. It's been it's been years. Many years. Many. What years was it when you were on council and I was the law director and we were? Oh, well, I began council in ninety five, nineteen ninety five, and I was there four years, and then mayor from that point on until I was term limited in two thousand seven. So quite a while. Quite quite a while. Quite a while. Well, we've been talking. We just caught up with each other over at that uh, conservative convention that was over in Westlake the other weekend. Yeah, it was great running into you there. It was great seeing you and and talking about uh, politics. Politics are still something that takes up a whole lot of our time, and we've been watching it and watching how people have been reacting and watching how the public's been reacting to it, and thought it would be great to... Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, it's it's a, a time... I think unlike any other that I've seen in my lifetime. I don't know how you feel about that, but um, th- these are certainly different times. Well, they, they certainly are different times, and, and what happens is that there's sort of been a, a change in, in how people practice politics, uh, where I know back in our days, you and I used to disagree on things, but we'd intelligently talk about it and find out where there's common ground and get the job done. We'd agree, ultimately. And something. Ultimately, even if it was to disagree but find a, a common denominator that we could at least move forward with, it, 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 it seems now that everyone just digs their heels in. There's no discussion, and I think that's a huge part of the problem as far as trust in our government that we all feel now is a lack of trust because there is no outward discussions public discussions, looking at pros and cons of, of one agenda over another, one way to solve it, or actually any discussion about actually solving problems, it seems to be that it's more of just talking points and narratives and, and plausible deniabilities. Um, at least that's how I feel. That's how I see it. Well, I, I see it uh, very similarly. What, what happens that people... Uh, tend to have almost the same thing as a religious zeal in defending their political positions. So you end up talking to somebody, you get done maybe one, two, possibly three questions, and already people are name-calling and they're very angry and they're, they're closing up and not talking, and uh, you're not going to get things resolved. 
Uh, on, yeah. on top of us developing this way, I think uh, beside media and social media uh, coming out with um, oh, divisive statements and representations and opinions and so on, we, we had the COVID bomb drop on us back in uh, you know, early 2020. That sort of screwed everything up for a long time. Uh, how, how do you think we managed the COVID thing? Could it have been done differently? I, I think that I think that the biggest obstacle in our ability to deal with the COVID thing has been the lack of public discussion by our supposed leaders um, and the lack of involvement of the medical community in that discussion. The the hands-on practicing in the field medical community has been stifled. It, it, it appears, and you know, I had an opportunity, oh, a couple of months ago, to be in an event where uh, a group of like-minded people, and there was a doctor there, a uh, woman, mature woman around my age, and discussing her anxieties as a medical professional of what she has seen in this whole handling of COVID in that she said in all of her career, the CDC would make recommendations that would come from the bottom up, that would come from the medical community, the tried, the successful, the unsuccessful, the theories, the practicing of medicine, and work its way to the CDC who would sort through and from that gain best practices and recommendations. And her, and I, I mean, the, the anxiety that this professional woman, this practicing doctor, mm-hmm. felt and had, it was palpable. And she, because of the fact that she said in her entire career, she had never seen this where it's coming from the top down. It's coming from the CDC down. And the medical community is being threatened and silenced. And, and so, and I think, I think I'm stating the obvious here that as a people, we would be so much more um, comfortable in, in facing this issue head on if that open discussion was there, if we could hear, give me the good and the bad. Tell me the theories. Um, instead of bullying and strong arming and lying and holding back, and which is what we've seen from the get go with this. Well, there's, where there's, it's, yeah, go ahead. But it's well, it's just contradiction after contradiction. Now I understand this is a moving target in that we're learning as we go. It's a new disease. And, and so, of course, we're not going to know everything from the start. I get that. I think the American people are capable of getting that. And, and, but it's not being discussed as such. Well, so many things are happening and have happened uh, over the last couple of years. Besides, well, with the COVID situation, we look at the medical community generally. If you remember, remember on TV years ago, there was a television show called Marcus Welby. 
And oh, I do. There's a whole bunch oh, of... Oh, we're, da- we're dating ourselves, Nick. Yeah, we're dating ourselves. Mark as well, <laughs> Okay, for those of you who have never heard of it, Google it right now on your cell phone <laughs> and find out what it was. It was about a, a doctor who always wore a tie and a suit and was always nice and always had the right answers. But, you know, that was reflective of our society and how we held the medical community in such high esteem. And, and what I mean by that is that when a doctor would tell you something, you didn't question it. You would just go ahead and do what the doctor said. That's true. And that seems to have disappeared to a great degree now that uh, it's commonly recognized that, well, different doctors might have different beliefs. And what that has done, it's taken us average normal people, uh, sort of put us in a situation where, oh, what do we believe? Bottom line, things like the CDC, things like the FDA, people are starting to doubt. What the government says maybe is not necessarily accepted. The science, it's sort of the science versus the Constitution seems to be the argument, where the science uh, does indicate that if you have pandemics and you have a vaccine, if you vaccinate people, the pandemic goes away. Yet, we, we don't have that going on. We have people who are resistant to the vaccine, and there's a lot of ammunition for them to support their arguments. But uh, we still have the pandemic. We still have the economic echo of the pandemic uh, slowing down and seeing things even like you and I talked earlier about the supply chain and how things people aren't going to work. There's a shortage of longshoremen, truck drivers, and everything else that's holding up our supplies. And product being being made in this country and not being imported, which we need to address just as much as the workforce. But going back to what you mentioned about the science versus the politics of all of this, I am struggling, and I think many are, with this notion that um, that what the government is pre- preaching or trying to do is following the science. I, I, I fail to see it often in some of what they're saying. It, it seems as though the, the, um, the science is useful to them at certain times and at other times they're going against the science. For instance, when they're talking about statistics and how this affects young people under the age of 12 or, you know, and then in, in the risk factor there, and then the what the vaccine will do um, as a whole and whether or not they need it and weighing the risks. There's, I see a lot of uh, circling back and double talk. Well, let's, let's hold up for a moment. On, let's, let's hold up on double talk and circling around. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips, the advocate here on WHJ. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back, so don't go away. And now, back to the advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of the advocate. And tonight we're with Kathy Lux, former mayor of North Royalton and a political commentator here commenting on politics and Kathy, thank you for joining us, and we can solve all of the world's problems tonight, right? You think tonight? It may take <laughs> if, a few more episodes. I'm not sure, Nick. If ever, if <laughs> ever. But uh, well, we've had on the show a fellow named John Kersey from Tri-C. He's a communications uh, professor 
and talks about the misinformation that comes across from places like China and Russia and so on that uh, is just designed to divide this country, to make everyone doubt and distrust our country. And uh, that's helping their agendas, but not ours. It's sort of making our our view toward democracy tenuous as people start questioning things like elections and the, uh, the government uh, establishments like the CDC and the NIH and so on. So what, what do you think about what's happening with disinformation and how we're, we're dealing with it? Is the general public really keen enough to fact-check things and figure out what's real and what's not? Well, it's a huge topic. It could. And, and, you know, and my initial thought on the disinformation from Russia and China is while, sure, that it, that exists, there's so much of it coming within our own government that they, we don't need help <laughs> with, with disinformation. We're doing it all ourselves, I think, on a large scale. Um, because somehow it's become a... Um, you know, winner take all. As I think we began with this, winner take all, fight to the death, dig your heels in. Um, and if that means sticking with a narrative, whether or not the facts are not quite right, uh, but as long as it gives you plausible den- deniability, or um, it's it's this it's this approach from the government that is leaving so many of us not trusting our government any longer. I don't believe we need China and Russia to do it for us. We're, it's, it, we're doing it ourselves. If you look at, and I think it's so prevalent now, it, you know, with, with this administration, it, it, it's so obvious to me, I, I, and I'm, I'm certain I'm not alone here, that it, it, it's, you know, any issue that is critical right now, if you look at the border issue, if you if you look at the pandemic, um, if you look at what happened in Afghanistan, all of it, the government is telling you one thing, and you are seeing the complete opposite across the board. Well, well, let's talk, let's talk about immigration uh, for a moment because uh, fifteen thousand Haitians in Texas uh, right. just just happened because the general rule or general thought. Seem to be by the U.S. government, and, and let's uh, l- let's agree that whoever's the president gets the blame for the good stuff and the bad stuff. And with the new administration in, uh, fifteen thousand Haitians coming in because they believe now's the time to get into the country because this government will not throw you out. So all our immigration laws are out the window. People just show up, and suddenly there are problem with all the problems they bring with them, just beside their numbers. Uh, so. And yes, and it's beyond the Haitians. We have we have migrants from over a hundred different countries coming in, and we are nearing I think 1.7 million now of migrants just since this administration took office that we have let in and that are being dispersed throughout the country to different states, um, and all the while. We are being told that our border is closed and that they've got things under control. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, when you, that's that's when, the narrative. When, when you think of immigration problems, you think of uh, people coming across the border in thousands, uh, 
uh, we always picture the great American Southwest. Uh, what relevance does that have here in Ohio? How, how do these migrants coming into the southern Texas towns and into New Mexico affect us at all here in Ohio? We had a flight, more than one flight, of, of them landing in Youngstown, Ohio. They are, they are not staying in those border states. They're being transported throughout the United States. It's going to affect every single state in this country, ultimately. So it, it, it's going to tax, further tax, our medical facilities when we're going to have people coming in largely unvaccinated um, with, and some of them with other health problems from third world type countries. Um, we need to provide medical care for them. Some of those are communicable diseases. Well, it's, it's, some of them are coming in with COVID positive. Correct. Good number. Correct. And they're not vaccinated. And, and they're not. And they're not. It's going to affect our educational institutions, which which already we are we are struggling in in Ohio. And I've, you know, I, I think I may have mentioned this to you. I've been doing a little volunteer work on a on a campaign in Ohio's 11th congressional district. Um, I'm not in that district, but I have great respect for the woman that is running in District 11. And in, within that district, which you know is comprised of part of Cleveland, part of Akron, and a kind of suburbs along the 77 corridor, um, connecting the two, Cleveland and Akron. Within that district, we have an area of poverty where in education we are failing so badly, the, the illiteracy rate is 67%. Now, if you think about that, in this day and age in the United States of America, we have an area with a 67% illiteracy rate, and that is part of the Cleveland School District. So now we're talking about adding to a system that is already failing in many ways. So it, it, it impacts our economy. Um, we've, we, you know, these, these people are coming here. They need, uh, they need sustained. They need financially course, sustained. Yeah. It, it certainly is going to be, um, you know, part, part of our economy. Well, I think everybody, uh, and I'm talking politically both sides, I'm talking about the left and the right, they they have to agree, I would think, that, one, we have to have an immigration policy. And why would we need an immigration policy? One is because we have immigration laws that need to be enforced. Now, the question is, how do we do that when you just have this flood of people coming over the border constantly from the south border? Have you heard of any solutions other than a lot of us wringing our hands saying, woe is us, they're coming, they're coming, but nobody can do anything to, in the long term, shut off the opening. It, and and we were on track with solutions. Um, and, I, and I, you know, to say our border is closed, but then we're, we're not providing the adequate forces that we need with Border Patrol officers. We're not supporting well enough those Border Patrol officers to do the jobs that they're doing. We are 
using our border patrol officers to maintain refugee camps instead of supporting the border and keeping it's safe and catching the people that are trying to come in illegally. Well, but that's because uh, that's because of the numbers coming in, though. I uh, but, talking about opening or closing our borders. Our borders technically are always closed. Always have been closed to people who are illegally trying to enter this country. Uh, we've right. always been open for people to legally come into this country, come in on a visa, or of to come course, in under some policy. As we but, should be. Sure. As we should be. Or just get, um, rid, of, get rid of the laws altogether and, op- you know, true open borders either, would be chaotic. Are we a sovereign nation or not? The issue is, you know, and I I still, you know, maybe it's just me, I'm not understanding what is wrong with a wall at the border. And the and the materials are sitting there. And the, and the contract... Um, has recently been canceled, but was in place. And we were paying millions of dollars for the materials to sit there and the building to stop and the wall not, not progressing any longer. That was a solution. The um, policy that we had where they were waiting in Mexico to be processed, that was working. That policy was rescinded by this administration. So those are the things that gave support to the Border Patrol officers. Um, that, coupled with the fact that they have been um, demoralized in well, many ways. It goes on, well, law enforcement generally. Well, generally. Kathy, I'm going to have to let us all know here, remind us that we're almost out of time here. But uh, I'd like to thank our political commentator, Kathy Lex, for joining us. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us. We'll have to have you on again. My pleasure, Nick. I'd love to. Thanks. And, and I'm disappointed we didn't solve not only everything, we didn't solve yeah. anything tonight, but <laughs> we'll, we'll try it again. We'll, we'll try to make this an ongoing uh, challenge for us here. So that you. would be great. It was great talking with you. Great talking with you too, Kathy. And we'll, we'll be talking again, I'm sure. Okay. So thank you so much. We're going to take another short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Don't go away. We're going to be right back. Cleveland, Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. In the next few segments, we're going to be talking to Carla Gore from Kent State University. Uh, she's in charge of the Anti-Racism and Equity Institute at Kent State, and it, it's somewhat of a new institution. Carla, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Sydney. The Anti-Racism and Equity Institute, Kent State University, and it's 2021. What, what are we doing with this now, and why now? What what happened since the 60s? So, Nick, um, you know that Kent State has had a, has a very strong and rich history of activism, uh, including work that has moved the university and the nation toward, toward uh, racial inequality, toward increased racial inequality. So, for instance, uh, the Black United Students Group on campus has had a strong presence 
at Kent for decades and was an important part of facilitating the celebration of uh, Black History Month every, every February. So back in 2020, um, COVID-19, that pandemic uh, has been you know, devastating for our country. And we know that it disproportionately impacted Black and Brown communities. So during that time period, there was more focus placed on issues of racial disparity and access to health and health care. And that, coupled with the high-profile killings of Black people in America during that time, really created an opportunity, an opportunity for the nation and for Kent to refocus energy to refocus energy and attention uh, on issues of, of racial inequity and inequality. And so at Kent State, we have begun working on that problem and the problems that stem from racism. The, um, my, my first question going back to like back in the 60s, uh, there's sort of, uh, we talk about woke and being awakened. That was all going on back in the 60s when I was at Kent, 60s and 70s. Uh, didn't we make any progress between then and now? Why, why do we need to do this? Certainly. I mean, certainly what, hap- yeah. what happened? Didn't, didn't we make any improvements over these last 50 years? <laughs> well, certainly gains have been made. And there's lots of evidence that, that indicates that, that gains have been made. We've seen gains in the, you know, access to education for uh, communities of color. We've seen gains in access to um to the advancement into the middle class for communities of color. But regardless, the data is still clear. We see these really stark disparities in areas of of healthcare, in areas of wealth accumulation, in the areas of security and and experiences with the criminal justice system. Um, And I think that one of the things that happened in 2020 is that really broke open why the disparities in terms of health and health care, the disproportionate impact of the pandemic on communities of color was, um, was something that was real and that we had to grapple with. Uh, both individuals within communities of color and people that are not members of communities of color. It impacted all of us. Um, also, the experiences of people with criminal justice system and with the police in, during that time period. And and the and the um, and and the the years preceding that um, really brought us brought issues of inequality into stark focus. And so I think that this this led to um, to what to what to what happened in the fall of twenty and in spring of twenty one when Kent decided to move and move resources um, to to consider um, anti racism mm-hmm. activities at Kent. Um, and also the students demanded it. The students asked that attention and resources be made available to examine race, to examine racism and also work to eradicate it on our campus and beyond. And so in many ways, the things that are happening right now in terms of anti-racist activity at Kent are student-led. The Institute itself, uh, how many people are associated with it and how large of an operation do you have? 
the Institute now is, uh, we're very much uh, in a building phase of the Institute. Um, so right now it has one director and we are assembling, it has a, a director and a, a core group of faculty and administrators that support the Institute. We are creating an advisory board um, and several executive boards moving forward this year. Um, and so it's, fair, it's still a small operation, but but um, but built, but it is growing, and it has lots of support from the university. Um, administrators, faculty, students, and staff have all expressed tremendous support for a program like the Institute that will center and advance racial inequality on our campus. Well, you're tackling a problem as a new institute from scratch, uh, a problem that has been observed for hundreds of years, literally. Um, what are the goals and objectives of the Institute, and how, how are you going to attack these things and sort of make some useful sense out of what's going on and make some recommendations to make, make things better, which I think is everybody's goal, ultimately. Yes, I agree. So the goal, so the institute will work as a multidisciplinary hub that welcomes faculty and staff and students from across our eight campuses, from across our colleges and disciplines. Um, we're encouraging these folks to come together, work together, collaborate uh, in an effort to advance racial justice through scholarship and through creative activity. That is the goal. And so the Institute is going to be working to help promote and accelerate these types of research-rich interactions. We want to make sure that the people across campus who are doing complementary work, we want to make sure that they can connect. We want, to, we want to create networks of people to move equity forward. Um, we also yeah. committed to a strong relationship. We're also committed to strong relationships with community partners. The Institute's going to be something that's very public-facing. So while we um, promote and um, value uh, the sort of traditional research that, that universities tend to produce, we also want to make right. sure that the information produced is accessible to the public, that, um, that is valuable and relevant to the public, and that's something that, that we're also really excited with. So we just want to make sure that the Institute, that, that this hub, this multidisciplinary, multifaceted hub is just brimming with people, uh, both whom are affiliated with Kent and those beyond the university. We think that that will serve the greatest good as we come together um, and try to tackle some of these issues that you're right, have been, you know, that have been with us for years. Um, I think we have a pretty realistic view of what we're up against. So what we're hoping is that, that we can, you know, create these teams that can examine these issues, that can come up with interventions to help decrease inequality in our society, both on our campus and in our communities. Well, that's a big thing to do, and a lot of generalities that we're talking about. We're going to be looking at how do we focus that into some concrete action items and then measuring the results of those action items to find out whether or not we are making a difference. So 
So are there other universities that have uh, such an institute? There are several. There are several several universities. American University has an institute uh, that focuses on issues of anti-racism. Boston University has an institute that focuses on on these sorts of issues. Um, Southern California uh, has an institute that looks at this. So there are institutes. There are not a lot of anti-racism institutes. There, there are plenty of institutes that focus on race relations, um, and I'm sure that that within those institutes there are lots of anti-racist elements, but there are few that focus really solely on anti-racism. And when, and when I talk about anti-racism, I'm talking about scholarship that focuses on how racism undermines the well-being and the safety and the social mobility of racially marginalized, marginalized populations and um, works to create equitable outcomes. So the type of research that we're interested in supporting and promoting is, uh, is actionable research. So we're interested in learning more about racism and how it works, and uh, we're also interested in learning how to intervene and decrease How to intervene and change it. Yeah. Oh, very good. We're talking to Carla Gore. She's the director of a new institute at Kent State University, the Anti-Racism and Equity Institute. And uh, she's uh, sharing with us tonight uh, what, what is going on with that institute and, and what we can look forward to seeing over the next next years down at Kent. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back uh, after these words with Carla Gore from Kent State and talking more about the Anti-Racism Equity Institute. Don't go away. You're listening. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. We're talking to Carla Gore from Kent State University. She's the director of the Anti-Racism and Equity Institute. Uh, We're talking about racism today, 2021. And um, my questions are, why do we still have racism? It's been like 50 years from Kent since we've been doing, uh, you know, anti-racism programs. So, uh, again, Carla, thank you for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having you know, me. Oh, you're welcome for joining us. Uh, you know, over the uh, the many months, we've been talking uh, about politics with a lot of the guests. And I know with an anti-racism equity institute, we run into some uh, interesting problems with uh, the semantics of, of the vocabulary and glossary we, we use in, in this situation. Uh, one of the problems is that you know anti-racism, that by recognizing different races and focusing on them, that's racist in itself. How do we respond to people who are saying that we should really get rid of racism altogether, but still recognize the different racial groups that may be impacted by societal practices? How, how do we address those issues? Well, thank you for that question. So, uh, and I think that that is as is an important question, and and it's one that 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 we do hear um, frequently. There's something about the term, you know, racism that that um, that 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 is can be upsetting for for folks. But I think that in our institute, um, in our institute, we really we focus and rely on an evidence based type of um, an evidence-based 
program that that suggests to us very clearly that there are, you know, stark disparities or differences when we talk about things like healthcare, income, education, wealth, um, the criminal justice system. And controlling for other factors, race continues to explain much of this disparity. And so we hope through the efforts of our institute that we will come to a place where we don't need to talk about issues of race and racism. But we're not there yet. So to those folks who are concerned about the language and the semantics that, that we use, I, I am with them. I think we're on the same team. And I think that, that, that the common ground we can find is that we want to work to eliminate these sorts of disparities. And when, when racial, you know, um, when we talk about equity and moving toward equity, we're talking about an absence of systemic disparities. So when those disparities are removed, we won't have things like the Anti-Racism Institute. So um, I think that moving, to, I think that the work of our institute can create an environment where we don't have to talk about issues of race. So I hope that folks who are concerned about that will join us so that eventually um, we can create the type of world that they and we want to live in where race doesn't determine access to things like education and healthcare. That, that raises another issue that, that we're hearing about over while well, just watching how this country has been divided politically and we have a couple of forces that, that are out there. Number one, I think uh, when we saw 9-11 you know, 20 years ago with uh, how the country was brought together, everyone was an American. We had sort of this unanimity of everyone being part of the same American group. We we're all American citizens and so on. Yet, on the other hand, we have a lot of groups uh, that, are sort of falling into what I would call a tribalism, where they focus on their, their cultural backgrounds, whether it's African-American or Latino or German or Italian. Um, there, there's a place for that, but the question is when it dominates and is added to the division between sections and sectors of the country, uh, we end up with looking at which sectors are doing better than others and which cultures are doing better than others. And if we look at it from that way, um, how, how is the Institute going to reconcile between the unanimity of all Americans versus people who want to enjoy their, their cultural backgrounds? Is that, is that a problem or what, how do we handle that? Well, I'm not sure that... Um I'm not sure that the Institute would regard that as something that we are uh, not supportive of. Certainly the Institute wants to promote um, uh, backgrounds of diverse groups of people and wants to create, you know, um, an atmosphere of safety so that people can talk about and celebrate their backgrounds. The Institute also wants to create equitable um, environment so that so that the disparities faced by different racial groups uh, are not as easily politicized 
um, we want to decrease those disparities and increase equity so that policy and policymakers will need to find other things to use to create um, to create uh, group and, and group building within their constituencies. We want to eliminate issues of racism so that they're no longer issues um, for us here in, 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 in our country. I would, I would think that uh, during this COVID time of our lives, uh, 2020 especially, that there, there may have been some opportunity to uh, not look at people as being racially uh, aligned with one group or another when there was so much uh, remote studies. Has that actually happened where we benefited? Um, because of, because we're not together. Yeah, I was thinking by working remotely, uh, you know, race isn't much of a deal because you don't even know the race of the students that are out there who are participating remotely. Mm-hmm. So, so it'll be see... interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead. I think that's an interesting question, Nick, and it'll be interesting to see what sort of research comes out um, as scholars begin to study this time period. What we do know about um, how in, how race has impacted um, students, in particular during this during during the period of COVID, is that there's there's the digital divide that we know has been problematic for many years now, where some students have access to better and higher quality technology than others. That that disparity really impacted students during COVID. But because when colleges and universities and K through 12 programs went online, in order for students to be able to access um, educational resources, they had to have working computers. They had to have strong and consistent internet access. Um, and we know that when students when students don't have access to that, and we know that that, that communities of color are less likely to have, to have access to those sorts of resources. That really impacts the student's ability um, to learn and to thrive um, in terms of education during the times when the school systems were shut down for students to actually physically attend. So we do. So here we see an example of racial inequity impacting the way that students can access education. Our institute is interested in figuring out ways to reduce that equity so that we don't have that sort of disparity in access. So, so yes, I see your point. While on the one hand, we might not be aware of someone's racial background while interacting with them on the computer if cameras are off, we certainly know that individuals' access to those sorts of resources impact whether or not they even are on, you know, are, are on internet sites and on educational sites during, um, during educational programming. Well, we uh, have a little less than a minute to go here, but I wanted to thank you, uh, Carla Gore from Kent State University, the director of the Anti-Racism and Equity Institute at Kent State. She has one of the privileges of starting from scratch with a institute that she gets to uh, shape and make it uh, very, very helpful. So, uh, Carla, thank you so very much for uh, joining us tonight. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you again after you've been in power for a while and find out what kind of progress we've made. So thank you again. Thank you, Nick. I look forward uh, to it. Thank you, Carla. And thank you for listening tonight. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great, healthy, and safe week. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset Sat and drank my fresh mint tea With nothing to do until morning Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.